If you ache for truth, goodness, and beauty, if you're hungry for a Christianity with substance and strength, if you long for a faith that's big and bold and biblical and all about Jesus Christ, if you're inspired by the idea of one church that has spanned 20 centuries, 24 time zones, and two hemispheres, enfolding every race, nation, and language, then you're considering Catholicism. Well, Corey, we're out here in the forest. Yes, we are. It's a beautiful evening. That's right. The uh, spring has sort of more or less sprung Mm -hmm. and allows us to once again return to the secret compound. Indeed. And we sit here in the pines and we've got a, uh, I don't know if the fire is roaring, but is- purring at least. Yeah, it is merrily chirping along. And we're enjoying um, a nice beverage here in the forest. And we're going to talk about creation Mm -hmm. and origins and human evolution and this kind of stuff, because we had a listener who wrote and said, here's the question as, as they presented it. Can you explain the difference between the Catholic position on evolution and creation and, you know, the origins of the world and humanity versus the Protestant position? Mm-hmm. And I, I thought, well, certainly we can tackle that. And so called you, you came out to the forest tonight and here we are. But we're going to talk about this, but, but there's a fundamental problem, not with their curiosity, but I think with the way the question is framed, and, and part of this is this, we've talked many, many times about how there isn't a Protestant position right. on so many things because Protestantism has largely come to mean not Catholic. And there are a lot of different perspectives and approaches right. to different so questions. within the world of Protestantism, which is to say all of the churches that are not Catholic or Eastern Orthodox, there is a huge spectrum of opinions on every theological or doctrinal issue, including this issue. Well, and it's not just that different organized churches have opinions within the pews, you know, between individuals, you're going to have different perspectives too. And within intellectuals in the field. So if you go to a Christian college, a Protestant evangelical Christian college, you're going to get professors in various fields who say this and this and this about evolution and creation. And then you're going to get, you know, as you say, people in the pew and you're going to get Pastor Bob and Pastor Dave and Pastor Sue, and they're going to have their own positions. And then you're going to have groups that are activist groups like, you know, the Noah's Ark people or the this or the that. Right. So there's this large smorgasbord of views within Protestantism. Nevertheless, I think I understand where this listener is coming from Mm. because there is a sort of characterization or sort of if not dominant view, a sort of, uh, how many here? It, it's, it's sort of like a perceived view of sort of American evangelicalism. Yes. If you drill down, you find that there's much more diversity, but there is a sort of perceived view that American evangelicals uh, tend to be, what we'll, we'll explain this in a minute, young earth creationists. They believe that God created the world more or less in exactly the form that you see it, and he did it relatively recently. And that much of the Genesis 1 through 11 
uh, which tend to be, right, starting in Genesis 12, you start to get sort of history right. with Abraham. Abraham and the patriarchs. Right. But Genesis 1 through 11 largely is a literal, just literally descriptive. So we're going to say, for the purposes of this conversation, that that is the Protestant view, because I think that's what the listener is, is drilling down on. Yeah, that's, that's certainly a very popular view, a very widespread view. Um, if, you, if you surveyed the man on the street or the woman on the street, I think that, that's probably the one that you would get to describe the Protestant view nine times out of 10. Well, and I want to be really careful because, you know, you and I, at least I kind of came out of the evangelical world and you also mm-hmm. are a convert, but I, I worked and moved in that world and Christian publishing and mega churches and all that for a lot of years. And a lot of the people with, who do things like, uh, what is that plague thing down South? The Ark experience. Yeah. And the that, creation museum. Creation museum. A lot of those people are my friends and you know, I, Oh yeah, I'm not here to insult anybody. Yeah. Well, and I, what I would say to anybody who's listening is I've voted with my feet by joining the Catholic church and hosting the considering Catholicism podcast. So, um, I've, I've sort of flown my flag in terms of being Catholic, but those people were my friends and they're incredibly devout and they're incredibly, and many of them are, are quite intelligent. And I have a tremendous amount of respect for them, even if I don't necessarily agree with all of their conclusions. So I'm not going to sit here in any way, shape, or form and bash them. Just not in me to do that. I have a tremendous respect for where they're coming from and in some degree, to some degree, why they hold those positions. Sure, sure. But I've become Catholic, which brings us to the question of, okay, if, if, we, if we say, at least for the purposes of this conversation and, and the listener's question, that that is this sort of young earth creationism is, quote unquote, the Protestant view or American Protestant view, what is the Catholic view, <laughs> right? Which is a little bit more nuanced, isn't it? Yeah, it, it's sort of, it's like the funhouse mirror image of, of the Protestant situation Explain on the it. other side. So we just got through with saying that there's no one Protestant view. In a certain sense, you could say the same thing about Catholics, that there isn't a single Catholic view. There's a way that the church exhorts us to approach these issues, um, both in scripture and in science. But there are different conclusions, different legitimate conclusions that Catholics can come to. There are certain things, certain guidelines that the church gives us that are important to follow, but there are different conclusions that one can come to by following those. And and there are people, Catholics, who have have come to them and, and there's a diversity. Okay, Corey, there are people who are listening to this far be it for me to be one of them, mm-hmm. but who are saying, man, what Corey just said is super wishy-washy and mealy-mouthed and everything else. What exactly is it? What is the Catholic position on this? Because theoretically, the Protestant, as we've said, is kind of has a, you know, that, that evangelical world has a position. What, what is the Catholic position? And it's like, well, yeah, you know, it's like, okay, here's how I'm going to say it. If the Protestant church has that position, the Catholic church very cautiously has no position. Sort of. Mm -hmm. In other words, the Catholic Church says that there are, and I'm going to let you unpack these, Mm -hmm. that there are certain non-negotiable truths and that those truths come from scripture, Mm -hmm. tradition, and natural law. Yes. And these truths are absolutely non-negotiable. 
Mm-hmm. They are fundamental truths. As long as you preserve these fundamental, non-negotiable elements, Mm -hmm. there is a latitude to construct a lot of different theories about how the world came together, as long as you preserve these fundamentals. Right. So in a sense, the Catholic Church, if the evangelicals have a young earth creationism, you would say the Catholic Church doesn't really take a position about the totality of how the world came about, but it takes a very strong non-negotiable position that certain things must be true. However it happened, these things must be true. Right, right. So, Corey, what are those non-negotiables? Yeah, um, and feel free to chip in um, if you want, but uh, the first would be simply that God created the universe, that the universe did not arise purely by chance or was created in some haphazard way. Like God, God is the creator and sustainer of the universe. That's basic point one. Okay. So let me chip in there. Yep. Included in that, right? Bullet Mm -hmm. points underneath that. Yes. Number one, that God is fundamentally distinct from his creation. Right. So this isn't Hinduism where you say God is sort of, the the universe in a sense self-creates. Right. A kind of pantheism. Right. A pantheism. God is sort of the spirit of the universe that self-creates. God is distinct from the universe, his creation. And number two, he created ex nihilo. You want to explain? Yeah. That's a fancy Latin word. Yeah, ex nihilo, out of nothing. And so that means essentially that God is not dependent in any way on the creation. It's, it's not as if there was other stuff around and God had to use it in order to make creation. That's how a lot of ancient creation myths um, that were around at the time of Genesis have it which would essentially posit that there are two eternal things, God and stuff or matter right. or chaos or, or what have you. Right, right. So the universe is not eternal. Mm-hmm. The material world is not eternal. Right, and, and there are different theories about how old it is or what right. the beginning was, was like right. or whether okay. it had a beginning. But Whether it was uh, a million years ago or a billion years ago or a trillion years ago or 27 trillion years ago, there is a point at which there was not a universe, after which there was a universe. And we can argue about how far back that was, whether it was a million or a billion or a trillion or 80 trillion or whatever, but there was a point at which there was nothing, ex nihilo, and then there was something. Right. Right? Mm-hmm. And so, and that's a fundamental non-negotiable. There is a God who is eternal, uh, there is a God who is preexistent, and he spoke at a particular moment, however long ago that moment was, he spoke, and the universe came into being. Non- that's the first non-negotiable for Catholicism. What's the second? Uh, the second that I would identify is about the nature of man, because that's, you know, what ultimately the, the most important thing here for most of us probably is, and that God created man in his image and whether that involved biological evolution or not is immaterial to the, to the general important point that God created man in his image and the, the imaging of God, the soul of man, the rationality of man is not something that spontaneously arises out of creation, out of nature without God's action, but it's something that God directly does that it's an act of God, just like he created the universe ex nihilo in a sense, in a, in a very parallel way, he creates the human soul ex nihilo. Man is in God's image because God did that on purpose. So 
at a certain point, there was no universe. Mm-hmm. And then after that point, there was a universe. Right. At a certain point, there was no mankind. Mm-hmm. And then there was mankind. Right. Right. And one can posit different theories about what happened before that point. But at a certain point, mankind didn't emerge. In the sense of his soul. We can, we can have the argument about his body and we can talk more specifically about that if we want to get into the weeds. But man as man with a, with a rational soul made in the image of God was created directly by God. There was a time before there was man and there was a time now that there is. So for our Chestertonian fans out there, our fans mm-hmm. of G.K. Chesterton, of which we hope there are many because Corey and I, as we've made clear on this podcast, are deeply indebted to the thought and insights of G.K. Chesterton. In his seminal book, The Everlasting Man, in the first chapter, he makes this point that there was a certain point at which there was no mankind in the sense of being the image of God, and mm-hmm. then there was. And the example he gives is he goes, if you go back to the earliest cave, he has this whole thing about the earliest mm-hmm. cave paintings in in France. Yeah. I mean, they'd been discovered recently at that time. So it was kind of a sensation. Yeah. And you know, you go in there and you see these paintings of guys chasing a woolly mammoth or a whatever buffalo or something. And he says, right there, there's something that is fundamentally creative, fundamentally divine, the Mm -hmm. capacity to step back, see yourself, to convey that. There was a point at which there became man. And from the earliest moment, there was no proto-man. There just was man. Now, I'm going to get into the weeds a little bit on sure. this. Sure, okay? go for it. Because, and this may be a place where there's going to be some pushback, and I want to be careful because, like, we could easily do six episodes on this. And maybe oh, sure. we should come back and do a series of episodes on that. And dear readers or dear listeners, if you, <laughs> if you want us to, please, by all means, you know, uh, email. But I think we could... We, we could easily do multiple episodes. I mean, there's on this been so thing. much ink spilled on this. Yeah, you could do a whole podcast. But here's on. here's the deal. Um, why don't you explain the difference between polygenism and what is it? Monogenism. Monogenism. Yes. Why don't you explain what those two words mean and how they're relevant to this conversation? I will, and and hopefully we won't uh, argue too much because I mean there is there is. There's probably some room for, for disagreement here, but... Well, it's possible that yeah, out here yeah. in the in the woods, surrounded by Sasquatch and Chupacabra, we could come to blows. <laughs> There's a fire here and, and uh, you know... And dear reader, uh, listeners, <laughs> it, would be, it would be caught on tape for your, That's for right. your if you, listening pleasure. If you hear struggles in the back and we are reverting into primal mankind as Sa- we just... Because I, th- I suspect that Corey and I may have slightly different perspectives yeah, on this one. Sasquatch will be very disappointed in us. I don't, I don't know if he's rational or not, but I suspect that Corey and I, in the spirit of Catholicism may have not deeply different views, but slightly different perspectives on this. Yeah. And and I mean, I'm comfortable with that. And I hope, I hope you are, um, because I think we're both within, as we said, the, the principles that are required by the Catholic faith. 
But anyways, that's all getting off the point of what the terms actually mean. Um, so monogenism and polygenism, you'll, you may recognize some Latin roots, mono for one or poly for many, um, and genism like Genesis beginning or generation. Um, so monogenism is, is the principle that humanity arose at one point, um, from one set of ancestors. So that would be like a literal reading of the first few chapters of Genesis in which there was literally one man and one woman, a literal human couple, and all humanity is descended from them and from no one else. Uh, so that's monogenism. And then polygenism is a position that has been argued for by a lot of evolutionary biologists in the last uh, hundred years or more. The idea that there were more than one, uh, there was more than one couple that are the ancestors of mankind more that there was a, a population at the beginning of mankind, if you will. And there are different ways that that could have played out. Um, it could be complex, complex or more simple. But the basic idea is more than one human couple to begin the race or just one human couple to begin the race. And you'll obviously see that the, the literal or plain reading of Genesis would tip you towards monogenism. And then polygenism has been proposed primarily by evolutionary biologists. Okay. Now sitting here in the forest, I'm going to choose my words with great caution. All right. So to demonstrate the spirit of Catholicism, which is means by definition universal, a big church, as I say in the intro to this podcast, 20 centuries, 24 time zones, uh, people of every tribe, language, and nation. It's a big church, and mm -hmm. there is diversity uh, within this big church. So within the bigness of the Catholic church and within the diversity and the innovation and the complex intellectual tradition of this church, there are certainly those who have advocated polygenist views, and they are part of that big church. That being said, choosing my words carefully, they're dumb and wrong. <laughs> okay. Oh, thanks. <laughs> so, so the thing is, is that with <laughs> the reason I say that, right, uh, is because there are those who are uh, monogenists within the church, including many popes and doctors of the church who have said essentially in, well, maybe not even in less polite words than that or more polite words than that, uh, that's dumb and wrong. And so the reason I kind of throw that out there is that this is something about which there is robust debate. Mm -hmm. And I would argue, and Corey and I talked about this a lot before we started the recorder, I would argue that the best thinkers and the best popes and the best part of our tradition and the best intellectuals and doctors of the church our tradition have been strict monogenists. And that doesn't mean that because, as we said at the beginning, that within the boundaries of Catholicism, as long as you hold to the non-negotiable that at some point there was not man and at some point there was man, that polygenists can sort of like fit within the tent. But I would argue with uh, great respect that <clears throat> with many of the doctors of the church and popes of the church that, you know, while that's Catholic, it's sort of like not true. So, I, I, I mean, I think I, I'm kind of obviously being a little bit, trying to be a little bit funny about it, but I, I, I do think that it, it is a point of 
And I'm trying to illustrate that it's a point of robust debate. Yeah. And, and I think our disagreement here comes not necessarily because I'm a convinced polygenist. I'm, I'm not convinced of it. Um, I so you're not committed to a dumb and wrong position. I, nor am I committed to the other position. I, 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 you've called me wishy-washy, but I think that if the church can withhold judgment, then I can withhold judgment without being wishy-washy. Um, if, if that's the church's position. I think that you can be authentically Catholic, which mm-hmm. I think you are, you're the most authentically Catholic person I know, and have a different view, which is, mm-hmm. I, I, I'm trying to, in a little bit facetious, in a little bit of a facetious way, mm-hmm. to illustrate that part of Catholicism is to allow for a robust intellectual debate. Mm-hmm. And it always has for 2,000 years, and I'm sort of being a little bit silly out here, but yeah, it is. It, it, there has always been a tradition of robust intellectual debate, especially about things like the empirical sciences, within the Catholic Church for 2,000 years. Mm-hmm. But there is also a tradition in the Catholic Church for 2,000 years of great doctors of the church and saints of the church, you know, uh, not holding, uh, you know, uh, letting go with both barrels about that because the debate is robust. Yeah, and and again, like I said, I'm not uh, strictly arguing for polygenism, but I do think for the, for the sake of the listener's understanding to present a, a brief counterpoint to your argument for monogenism is to compare it to um, the church's position often implied, but um, the church's position on something like the arrangement of the solar system where oh, you, I'm so glad you brought that yeah. up. Um, and that could get us way deep into the weeds on other, oh, yeah. other I mean, We could go on for half an hour about Galileo. Oh, way, way longer than half an hour, Greg, if we wanted to. Oh, I, um, we were probably going to need to do that. We're yeah. probably going to need to do an episode or series of episodes on Galileo mm-hmm. and the solar system and all this. Because, no, I, seriously, because what this is what we're touching, and we talked about this before, and we said, hey, in this episode, we got to watch our time because we can go, mm-hmm. like, go down all these rabbit holes. Like, the relationship of the Catholic Church to the empirical sciences historically mm-hmm. and the misunderstandings about Galileo and the solar system. I mean, I'm convinced that almost everything, dear listener, almost everything you have ever heard about that is wrong. Oh, probably, unless you've read much better history than is presented I, in I guarantee you that almost everything that you have been told about the Catholic Church and Galileo is wrong is false. That's not the way that it went down and not the issues and not the reasons, including the fact that the medieval church persecuted Galileo when he was in the 1600s and mm-hmm. it wasn't the Middle Ages. So the the, the thing is, is that, you know, I, I don't, we're not going to go down there, but what I would say is that the Catholic church's relationship to the empirical sciences is the Catholic Church gave birth to the empirical sciences within the Western world. You know, at some point, I think I read, you know, that um, of all of the Nobel Prize winners or, you know, whatever of mathematics and astronomy, something like half of them, you know, historically have been Catholics or uh, religious figures. You know, you go back to things that you may have learned in you know, seventh or eighth grade science. Like remember Gregor Mendel with the pea pods and, Mm -hmm. you know, doing uh, the first studies of genetics, you know, what, what Augustinian friar, you know, Um, you go back to the first astronomers, the Vatican, uh, you know, observatory. I mean, the mathematicians that were Jesuits. So the Catholic church has a long history of engaging with the empirical sciences in a very robust way. And those debates being very robust debates (laughs) in which there were a lot of people who pointed at each other and said, you're dumb and wrong. And the other guy said, no, you're dumb and wrong. And he said, no, no, you're the dumb and wrong one. And he said, you're the dumb and wrong. And they fought it out sometimes for generations. Mm -hmm. 
And that robust exchange led to conclusions. And honestly, if we were, if we, when we do, if and when we do a thing about Galileo, what we'll see is that he has to be understood in a context mm-hmm. uh, in which the Catholic Church was engaging his empirical sciences about astronomy and mathematics, mm-hmm. and and he is sort of an episode in a longer history. And uh, you have to see his story in that context. Right. And and so the reason I brought that up to bring it back is that. In that instance, you have for more than a thousand years, the, the assumed default position of geocentrism, the earth is the center of the universe. Then you have scientific discoveries and findings and debate. Um, the church eventually recognizes that the best science supports heliocentrism, that the sun is the center of the universe. And then of course, after that, you have all kinds of um, expansions in our understanding of astronomy. Um, and we don't even consider the sun and the solar system to be the center of the universe. But anyways, you had that adjustment in the church's understanding of science that didn't affect the fundamental dogmas and teachings of the church. Right. And so it is possible that we have another situation like that where as long as we follow those first principles that we've outlined, it may be that we are in a period in which the science is being fought out and it's going to be a dirty battle for a while. And maybe our perspective on exactly how God created the universe and humans specifically will change. That's possible. Right now the jury is out, but if it did, it wouldn't change the fundamentals of the faith and of dogma. And it wouldn't, be a problem that you had had a default position that was different from it for all that time because it didn't touch the the center of the faith. Okay. And you're talking about all of all of those people. And I have by no means disrespect or or disregard the opinions of all of the all of the popes and doctors of the church and saints that you've mentioned. But just because they're popes and saints and doctors of the church doesn't mean they can't be wrong about science, especially if, if it's a certain time in history when certain discoveries haven't been made. And in the last century, you've had popes like Pius Twelfth and John Paul II and Benedict who have been open to entertaining a position like polygenism and certain aspects of human biological evolution. And maybe they're wrong and maybe they're right, but at least I think we can, we can or I can agree that it's a debate that can be had among people who are both faithful to Jesus Christ and faithful to the teachings of his church. And whoever turns out to be right, um, those fundamentals don't have to be discarded. Well said. Mm -hmm. And we're going to clearly have to come back to this at some point because Mm -hmm. this, the amount of time we have is totally inadequate. And I want to make sure that we get back to the listener question. Um, But right. Like, what I would say is the issue about whether there was, because what we're really talking about is whether there was an Adam and an Eve. Mm-hmm. And I would argue that the, and I think that the bulk or primary thrust of the Catholic Church and Christianity would, would argue that the issue about whether there was an Adam and an Eve is not really a empirical science question but it really is a theological question. Um, and we're going to have to get back to that. We'll, so we're going to just have to circle back to that because the reasons why I believe that are based in, as you and I have talked about, in other parts of scripture and everything else. Okay, so Corey, at some point, we're going to have to come back to this because mm-hmm. clearly, man, there's just a lot to talk about here. Oh, yeah. And um, 
and now I'm thinking that we need to have, you know, just a multi-episode series about this. So listeners, if you're interested in that, you know, let us know. I, I'm thinking we need to go that way, but I would love to hear your your input mm. and your specific questions that you would like us to tackle. Yeah, absolutely. Because there's so many different directions one could go. But as Corey has said, there's a couple of things that the Catholic Church says, look, there's, there's, there's latitude for the empirical sciences as long as you preserve uh, the truth that God created the world from nothing and that he created man from nothing and made a distinct mankind that is in his image, mm-hmm. right? Yep. And whether that was 4,000 years ago or 40,000 or 4 million or 4 billion or whatever, there's latitude for, for discussion on that. Mm-hmm. But now I want to come back to this supposed Protestant position. And I said at the beginning that I think that I have trouble being critical of it because I came out of that world to some degree and I know those people and I have deep respect for them. And I want to talk a little bit about where I think maybe the listener who, who asked about this, where their confusion is about Catholicism, because Catholicism is taking a definitive stand, right? Mm-hmm. It does sound as I was kind of joking with you earlier that it, boy, Corey sounds wishy-washy because Catholicism doesn't take a stand on this. And I think that the, the evangelical American position came out of a historical context. Mm-hmm. And if you go back to the late 19th century, to the early 20th century, the ideas of Charles Darwin were being propagated into uh, not only society at large and the universities, but the, the school systems. Right. And there was a lot of freight attached to them, right? Like... The notion, the ideas of Darwin were like like train engines, steam engines that had all of these. Uh, what do you call the cars are attached? Uh, freighter. What do you call the cars in the back of a just train cars? Train cars. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what do you call them? They're like they're full of stuff, right? Like they're mm-hmm. I don't know, cars full of stuff, right? Box cars or something, right? So there were like attached to that, and I I would argue that this is how a lot of intellectual movements happen. There's like this this thing that sort of pulls it, and then there's all this freight that comes along. Sure. And I mean, you and I have talked offline even about how I think that like a lot of our LGBTQ or gender ideology debates today are like that. Like there's certain ideas that come along, and then like, man, there's the 87 freight cars that come behind them, mm-hmm. right? So what was happening is the ideas of Charles Darwin were being used to fundamentally transform Western culture and society in very fundamental ways. And not even just about this, right? This is always the thing. I think, well, all we're doing is talk about biology textbooks, right? But it was changing politics and it was changing mm-hmm. uh, the related nature of the family and the understanding of man and the nature right. of society and economics and 10,000 other things. And I think that American evangelicalism around, let's say broadly around the turn of the 20th century, was in the position maybe a little bit that the Roman Catholic Church was at the collapse of the Roman Empire when it had to sort of stand against the Germanic uh, influences, pagan influences, or at the point of the Reformation where the Catholic Church stood against sort of you know, Protestantism and this, that, where it, it, the, the church felt like it had to stand up against the societal transformation. And it, and it picked, it tried to, it tried to pick a point. It, it looked at the, it looked at the, the freight engine, the steam engine that was pulling the train mm-hmm. and sort of said, no, 
am I making any sense? Yeah, no. You know, and I, th- I think it, I think it drew a, a line in the sand and said, you know, with Darwin's ideas come all of this other stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you and can- it drew a line against him and said, well, you know, then we're gonna hold the line here. This is the hill we're gonna die on. And we're going to stand for the notion that scripture has a particular idea of God, the world, and mankind, and that that idea is scriptural and it's beautiful, and we're going to stand for it because if that falls, all this other stuff, you know, mm-hmm. comes after it. And so that's why I, whether or not, you know, we can, you can get into the weeds on the empirical science of it, I think it has to be understood within that, that context of, of a, if, it, of a sort of a defense against cultural transformation. Yeah, no, I I think you're essentially right on that point because what it is in the late 19th and the early 20th centuries is the, the, from the scholarly community, but from kind of all drivers of culture is this position that the scriptures are fundamentally unreliable and that the universe is fundamentally materialistic and doesn't have, well, God or any, any other invisible um, beings or elements to it, um, or if they exist, they're irrelevant to us. And that, that philosoph- those philosophical positions became attached to the scientific okay. theories of- A hundred percent right. Yeah. So part of that was if the Bible is wrong about Genesis 1, 2, and 3, then the Bible is a fundamentally unreliable. Mm-hmm. And you can't believe it when it talks about anything else. So once, okay, I'm just defending that mm-hmm. position. W- once that falls, everything sort of like the dominoes all collapse or, you know, the Jenga pile, you start pulling out things and it starts collapsing. And and then let's, let's be really honest and put our cards on the table. What was really going on in the late 19th and early 20th century w- was Marxism as a worldwide movement. Mm-hmm. Now people, oh my God, why bring up communism? Because it really was a thing, and it was transforming the world. And it was a, and, and I've always said that Marxism is fundamentally a, a, a religion or a worldview, and it is an atheistic, materialistic worldview, right? Mm-hmm. That believes in material progression, that the world is self-organizing, and that the the material world evolution is is evolving to some perfect form. Mm-hmm. Okay, and it's doing that. Uh, in the physical realm, it's doing that in the economic realm, it's doing that in the cultural realm, right? And that the the forces that stand against the evolution of the world and culture and mankind into that perfect form are the retrograde forces of Christianity, Catholicism, and the West. Right. And we now have been living with this for 125 years, and you can't look at the news today on any topic. And I understand that, that the anti-Catholicism and anti-Christianity you see comes from this fundamental notion that the world is progressing, we're, the world is progressing over and against the um, reactionary and retrograde forces of Catholicism and Christianity, which, which, which try to shackle us into a belief in a supernatural creator and the supernatural nature of man. When the truth is, is that man is, there is no God, there is nothing but materialism and materialism is, is progress, progressing and evolving to a glorious future. And there are these two big visions of the universe and you're going to fight this battle somewhere or the other. And 
I think that what happened in American evangelicalism is all other crap, okay? Up to today, you know, target sticking, you know, satanic tucking underwear and everything else, whatever crazy stuff is happening in the news as I read it today in, in the stores, all of this stuff that is anti-Catholic, right? The Dodgers, I grew up Dodger blue and with the sisters of perpetual indulgence throwing out the ball of the game, right? All of this stuff was hitched like, like train cars to the steam engine of Darwin in the late 19th to early 20th century. And American evangelicalism said, uh, dang it. <laughs> well, in order to we're, defend the, the, we're, we're the gonna, principles we're that gonna, God exists, God created the universe. We're going to die on this hill. Are that, reliable. Yes, that God exists. Mm -hmm. Mankind exists. Mankind is special. The scriptures are reliable. We're going to die on this right. hill. So they picked a particular, you know, the, the, as you rightly said, the most historically, um, common interpretation of the book of Genesis that, that will defend those principles and ideas against the onslaught against them. And the Catholic church took a different position because it looked at the science and said, we can square, if we dispense with the materialism and the atheism and the wrong anthropological ideas, there's room for the science to square. There are other interpretations of Genesis that can still hold those principles, God, man, creation, and so while I disagree with the, the strategy, essentially, that evangelicalism took, I can totally understand how it got there, which is, I think, part of what you're saying. That is what I'm saying. And what I'm saying is that you and I both entered the Roman Catholic Church in 2016. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's correct. So we have, in a sense, voted with our feet. We voted with our lives. We voted with our, you know, time, talent, and treasures. So you can't question that we're a, a, our allegiance to the Catholic position. Nevertheless, I can understand why my evangelical friends perceive Catholicism to be wishy-washy on this, wishy-washy on this point. Yeah, no, I, I understand. And, but the reason, the fundamental reason that I think that even though there's less comfort perhaps in not having a definite position on this and being open to different interpretations. The reason that I think that is the right way to go about it and, and that the Catholic church has chosen the right path there is because the, the evangelical or the fundamentalist or whatever you want to call it position has opened up a perceived gap between religion and science that for many people is insurmountable. And so if you, if you give most people the choice between either strict literal interpretation of Genesis one through 11 or atheistic evolution, they're going to look at science and they're going to say, I guess I have to go atheistic evolution because this interpretation of the Bible doesn't look right to me. And, and I'm not saying that they should do that. I'm just saying that if you even just want to look at statistics, that's how most people who have honestly grappled with that question and haven't been exposed to or convinced by the, the Catholic position on it have swung away from it because they see the science as reliable and the, the fundamentalist interpretation of the scriptures is unreliable. Okay. Here's the thing. Now I'm sort of regretting opening this Pandora's <laughs> box because I feel like, like, no, you and I are, you know, good here, but 
I just feel like we're touching on so many things that need to be more deeply explored. Oh, absolutely. So, so here's the thing, dear listeners, um, please let us know if you want us to go deeper on this. Cause I'm feeling like we need to do a three or four or five episode series that really explores the relationship between the Catholic church and science and the empirical sciences and the understanding of the origins of life and all these things. And uh, if that's something that you're interested in us doing, we'll do. Um, but I, I'm feeling like, man, we're just running out of time for this episode. Oh yeah. And um, we've just, man, we've just come to the gate. So the, the listener who said, Hey, must understand. So Corey, let's, let, I'm going to give you the last word. So I'm going to go back and repeat the original question. Mm-hmm. Um, can you explain the difference between <laughs> the, the, uh, the Protestant position on evolution and origins of life and creation and the Catholic position? Can you, can you wrap this episode for us with the promise that we'll come back and, and go deeper? All right. Let me sum up. So most common Protestant position, not the only one, but the most common is a literal fundamentalist reading of the first chapters of Genesis that says this is exactly how it happened. There's no symbolism here, no poetry. This is how it happened. The Catholic Church's position is that there are fundamental principles contained in that narrative. God is creator from nothing. Um, man is created in God's image, um, not uh, arising naturally out of, out of nature or something, deliberately created by God that we have to stick to. Otherwise, we look at the science and we let that, um, guided by the faith, form our, our understanding of exactly how God created the universe and man. So it's, it's a less absolute, a less uh, specific answer than the, this is, the Genesis is exactly literal in every respect, but it, it balances that, um, that uh, symbiosis between faith and reason or faith and science that the Catholic church um, has defended in all of this time, 2000 years. Okay. Well stated. And I, what I'm just going to say is ever since I started doing university ministry 39 years ago, next year, my 40th year since that um, I've been thinking and arguing and discussing this (laughs) real deeply. And so I have, I have so many thoughts. <laughs> of I course. Have, I have 40 years worth of thoughts on this. So, uh, dear listeners, let us know, but uh, I think we're going to have to come back, circle back to this, but I hope we at least uh, gave you a, a little bit of a touch and a taste of, of where this goes. Absolutely. All right, thanks. Thanks, Greg. Thank you for listening. My name is Greg Smith. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, would you please hit the like and subscribe buttons wherever you get your podcasts? And please share it with others. And if you're curious about the Catholic worldview and faith, the church and its saints, or Catholic history, culture, and art, then visit consideringcatholicism.com. And email me to let me know what you think. Greg at consideringcatholicism.com.